0: life is inherently difficult and that if you're experiencing it as difficult you're not disordered and you're not inadequate you're experiencing it pretty much as it is it doesn't mean that life has to be depressing all of the time but it does mean that we need to develop an increasing comfort with the fact that life is difficult and we will experience uncomfortable emotions
1: Hey guys, welcome to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Roger Naren. Connor Beaton, my partner, is down in LA, kicking off another Man Talks event in our community and spreading some love across America. He's kind of like uh, Johnny Appleseed in Man Talks. Um, It's a really busy time for Man Talks and we're truly grateful for everything. Um, So we're hitting the road hard and trying to get our message spread far and wide. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, sex, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other changemakers in our community on Facebook or go to mantalks.com. Today's guest is Dr. Randy Patterson. On the show today, Dr. Patterson and I discuss the habits and thinking patterns that he's run into with his patients that make them miserable, and what you can do to eliminate those from your own life. You can read all about it in his book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. How to Make Yourself Miserable? I know it sounds a little complete opposite of what we're used to, but wait until you hear this reasoning. I think you're going to love it. It's a little bit of reverse psychology, which we can all use every once in a while. So without further ado, Dr. Randy Patterson. Hi, Randy. Welcome to the Man Talks podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. No, pleasure. Uh, Before we get started, we always like to ask the question, can you share with us a defining moment for you as a man?
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, probably in um, in the late 1980s. I was on an internship that I'd really wanted and was working away at, had been for a number of months, and something was happening. I was waking up early in the morning, long before I actually had to get up, I was finding it difficult to eat uh, before going off to work. Um, I was finding it difficult to concentrate. I couldn't focus that well on my clients. Uh, I was finding that I was very worried about my dissertation and how that was going. There were lots of things going on like that, and I, I, I began to wonder if I was, you know, just physically sick in some way. Maybe I had some kind of lingering flu or something. And I was walking and I, I'll, I remember exactly where I was. And if I went back to that community, I could probably find the exact street that I was walking on because I had taken to walking in the middle of the night because I was too agitated to actually work on my dissertation. And um, I stopped and suddenly became aware of what was going on. Now, I'm a psychologist. And at the time, I was a psychological uh, internship and I was treating people with depression, and it suddenly occurred to me, I was experiencing many of the same symptoms that my clients were. And that's really what was going on there. And then, of course, I had a second thought. And the second thought was, well, <laughs> why why on earth would I be depressed? I'm, You know, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm doing all of this uh, exciting work and so on. I'm following the career that I really wanted to be on uh, or in for a long year, a long many years, sorry. Then I began realizing the answers began, began coming to me. Really, the whole time I'd been there, I really hadn't been exercising very much. I'd been eating hospital food almost exclusively. I was working longer hours than I was actually supposed to and carrying a much larger patient load than I was supposed to. In the evenings, I wasn't getting any time off. I was working on my dissertation and so on, and I had virtually no social life. And there are a couple of other things as well, but t- together they, they they made up a, a list that made it look like I was trying to get depressed. I began to realize that the distinction between myself and the people that I was seeing in the clinic was really quite thin. That was a very thin and fine line, and really, perhaps an irrelevant one. Uh, that there really was no distinction. So that was a, a profound moment for me. I think in the development of my practice, and and my realization of what I was what I was getting into.
1: And I can imagine at the very outset, y- you struggle with the, this whole idea of well, wait a second. I'm I'm, you know, I know you're interning at the time, but you know, I'm I'm the doctor they're the patient. I'm not supposed to feel like them. That doesn't make sense. That That's the complete opposite of what's supposed to be happening. How did you deal with that at first? It sounds like you got to a good place in the end, but at first you must have thought to yourself... This is absolutely frightening. I, I don't I, I don't belong in this headspace.
0: Well, you know, everybody on internship uh, has a sense of being an imposter. Uh, and so, of course, that comes up. You know, how can I possibly be helping people when it turns out that I'm experiencing at least in you know, a somewhat milder form? But so many of the exact same things that uh, that they are. And I did what I really encourage people to do. I do workshops for for professionals on burnout and that kind of thing. And I encourage them to put themselves in a chair opposite them and imagine that this is your best same-sex friend and you're telling him what to do, Uh, or at least you're hearing his story and he's asking for some advice. And I realized that if I was to do that, if I was to treat myself as my own patient, What I would say is, well, you need to start exercising and you need to uh, stop working on your dissertation every night. Uh, You need to take time off. You need to do something to build up your social life uh, so you're actually getting out and having fun and enjoying life a little bit. You need to stop eating hospital food, for goodness sake. And uh, you need to really look at your thinking, you know, when you're seeing people who have very difficult and tractable problems. Uh, and you're self-attributing the fact that they're finding it difficult to get better, uh, self-attributing it to your own competence, you need to really look at that as well. And by doing that, I began actually realizing how I was uh, perpetuating my own difficulty. And I was able to begin taking steps to uh to overcome it
1: and when you say you're perpetuating your own difficulty this is actually the the topic of 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 the book that you've written which is called how to be miserable 40 strategies you already use and i love the idea of these are things that you're doing to yourself already let's let's kind of shine a light on it so where did the insights come from i mean obviously you had this experience uh uh, when you were when you're interning um did it manifest itself anywhere else and and how did it kind of come to light where where you decided it's it's time to write a book about
0: it? Well, I worked in Ontario for several years and eventually wanted to return home to vancouver and Fate usually has a bit of a sense of humor, so when I was applying for jobs, the job that I got offered was the head of a um, depression treatment program for people who had been hospitalized for serious clinical depression and recently discharged. The plan of the program was to basically to try to keep people out of hospital and keep them well. Well, I'd been kind of shying away from depression, feeling that it was a little bit close to home. And so I thought, well, this this will be great because I'll, I'll be in Vancouver and then it'll be easy to look for another job. I won't have to actually uh, uh, stay in this one for very long. And I wound up staying for a long while. This group program, though, involved people who'd been treated for depression for years, most of them. And so any big cheerleading that I was going to do, oh, cognitive behavior therapy, it's so wonderful. It will do the trick for you. No, you know, no worries. This was just not going to work. You know, these were quite uh, jaded people, I think, when it came to the mental health system, and frankly, appropriately so. So I I started doing the opposite. I said, okay, well, let's imagine that there's $10 million in a pile of bills sitting in the middle of this table. And you can win it. You can win it next week if, uh, if you can actually make yourself feel worse. I mean, just bear with me on this. I know it's a silly exercise, but try it. So people began coming up with things. He said, well, you know, stay at home uh, in, in your pajamas or you know, pull the covers over your head, close the curtains, play hurting music, you know, country music on the radio, all of this kind of stuff. And they began to laugh which was a very strange thing in a, in a depression group for people just out of hospital, that they're actually laughing and, and outdoing each other by coming up with better ways to make themselves feel awful. And then at some point, I stopped the exercise, or I would stop the exercise in every group. And I would say, now, now when you wake up and you're already miserable, you're already depressed, what are you tempted to do? And suddenly, they start saying exactly the same things. In other words, they're starting to Uh, recognize that the way that they're presently living may not be the origin of the problem, but it may be why the problem persists. So that's where that came from. Hmm.
1: It's it's fascinating. And, and, you know, maybe walk, walk the listeners through, um, you know, the, the, the sort of central tenets of the book. What are some of the lessons that people can pull away and, and sort of who, who is the book written for?
0: Well, I've written other material for people that are actually in the grip of serious depression. Uh, I chose to make this one more for the general population, in part because there's this literature right now on positive psychology, where we're trying to say, okay, maybe you're not unusually low, unusually anxious, unusually miserable about your life, but you're just not as pleased with your life as you think you could be. Uh, what are the things that define people that are in the upper quartile, let's say, of life satisfaction? And, and could you take that on? So that's, that's kind of the stance of the book. Learning from the depressive literature or the depressing literature, what are some things that you could do that might improve your mood? But we'll take a, a look at it from the opposite perspective. We'll imagine that what you want is to feel miserable, given that in a very privileged society with so many people unhappy in their lives, it appears that misery is our signature strength as a species. You know, it's what we're best at somehow.
1: Absolutely. Some more some more than others, too.
0: Absolutely. Some of us are, are, are very accomplished at this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one of the thoughts that I've had is, OK, well, what if you did want to feel lousy? And there is one strategy that I I thought, well, I should really sort of crescendo the book towards this, but I can't think of a way of making it really that interesting. And it's certainly not going to come around a corner and surprise anybody. Uh, And that's stop exercising. Uh, The research on this is so strong that if you are uh, experiencing low mood, uh, not getting any exercise will tend to perpetuate it and getting exercise will tend to alleviate it. The The strength of that improvement is easily equivalent to antidepressant medication. And it turns out that the longevity of the effect is longer. Uh, I, I often tell clients that if the research that we're looking at bears out, you know, once it's been done more and more and more, it's probable that exercising about a half hour, six times a week, is probably the most powerful antidepressant strategy we have. Conversely, if you feel kind of blah or ordinary, stopping your exercise is one of the most effective ways you, you have of reducing your mood.
1: Hmm. And and what, what sort of um, advice would you give to someone to, to get them... Exercising again for the sort of first time, how do you, how do you kick that back up? Because I, I know I've I've been in this position before. I've I've gone through depression, and that that is what actually got me out of it as well. Was was uh, uh, getting back to exercise, and then I and then I slip back, and and I can feel the sort of black dog loom over again, and and then I get back exercising. But what's you know what would your advice be to somebody who's perhaps in that same position? But could really benefit from, from getting some exercise?
0: Well, I suppose there are a couple of things. One of the things that I see for a lot of lot of people, mainly guys, who come up with this argument is that I'm really too busy. You know, I, I have this very responsible position. It takes a lot of hours in the day. I do not have time to exercise. And I keep suggesting somewhat obnoxiously, you don't actually have time not to there's something magical about exercise, which is that it actually gives you more time than it takes. It's one of the only things that I know that actually creates hours in that if you're exercising regularly, you're going to concentrate better. The quality of your sleep is going to be improved and your job performance is likely to go up even though you've taken time out to go exercise. So that's one thing I tell people. The other thing is that a lot of people say, well, I'm just not the exercising kind of guy. You know, I was never into sports in high school. I wasn't I'm not into all this stuff. I don't want to join the hockey team particularly. And the thought of jogging just makes, you know, it's just so boring and so on. And, and I don't think I'm ever going to become, you know, this total athletic guy. And I point out to them, you are in tremendous luck because... The benefit that you get from adding a little bit of exercise to your life is highest for you. It's lowest for the guy that's already exercising a fair bit. If we take an Olympic athlete and give them another half hour of exercise a week, it's not going to do them any good at all. If we take a total couch potato and give him half an hour of exercise, ideally three times a week, or... Even better, six. But if we can just get him exercising a little, the benefit in terms of his mood is going to be greater than for anybody else.
1: Hmm. And if we were to look at some of the the different techniques that you provide in the book, what's the, what's the one that people kind of comment on to you the most? That, that sort of like, oh, I didn't really think of that that way. That's something new that I've never really heard about.
0: Right. Well, I think there are a number of them that people have commented on. Uh, one of them is a way of thinking. Uh, called Measure Up and Measure Down. And the idea is, I present this as a party game. And uh, so the deal is, the next time you go to a party, think of something you value in yourself. Maybe uh, Maybe it's the kind of responsibility in the job that you have. Maybe it's your job title. Maybe it's the car that you drive. Maybe it's your knowledge of politics. Whatever it is, your ability to play the guitar, it doesn't matter. Think of that, and then try to pump yourself up with it, go into the room, and then find the one person in the room who's better than you at that thing. You know, you think of yourself as having all this great musical talent, but look over there. There's that, you know, uh, Peter Gabriel is at the party, and you just think, well, isn't this rather pathetic that I was thinking so so well of myself? So you compare yourself against Peter Gabriel over there in the corner, and you uh, say, well, Uh, clearly I'm nothing. And then you think of your political knowledge, and then you realize that, oh, over there, there's this political uh, operative for the, the, the party that you like, and you realize that you're a nothing by comparison to him. And then you do the same thing with a wide variety of other characteristics, finding the outlier and comparing yourself downward against him. What you must never do, though, is compare yourself against the pack, where you might have a better ability to play the guitar than most people present. Uh, You might be more responsible than many of the people that are there. Uh, You're as successful as as the general crowd and so on. Uh, You can't do that. You just have to compare yourself to the outliers. And the interesting thing people often have when they they read about that strategy is they begin noticing, you know what, that's what I already do. I'm already brilliant at this, and I can make myself feel inferior in any group of people. I could see that
1: being very beneficial to, you know, people at, at, at work in their jobs, where it's a constant comparison. Am I am I doing the right thing? Am I am I measuring up to the rest of the group? <laughs> am I you know am I performing to par compared to my you know fellow coworkers? And and I love that because it's just a constant constant comparison
0: we have to do some of that you know but the the problem becomes when we're only comparing ourselves to the you know, the nobel prize winners you know
1: absolutely so you're a director at the Changeways Clinic, and I'm wondering if you can explain to the listeners what you know. What exactly is the Changeways Clinic? It's, it's here in Vancouver, lovely Vancouver, where I'm also from. Um, but what exactly is the is the clinic f- uh, for?
0: Well, after a number of years at this hospital based service, um, I took the service private during one of the periodic downsizings at the hospital because I thought, well, I I, I need to um, get out there. I I, I felt like um, in in a way I felt like operating within that that system was like ne- never leaving home. It felt a little bit too much like home. And so I opened it as a private practice and initially uh, just myself, but gradually it's grown over the years. And it's now a large um, private practice in uh, for psychologists. There are 14 psychologists there now. And we're one of the larger services focusing on cognitive behavior therapy, uh, mindfulness based uh, approaches to therapy and that kind of thing in the city uh, we see a tremendous amount of depression uh, we see anxiety related problems uh, burnout return to work following burnout and uh, and a group of people that i'm I'm really interested in right now, which is young men who are having difficulty making the transition between Uh, home with parents, and full independent adulthood.
1: Mm, I'm wondering if you can expand on that because that seems like something that would be You know, right up the alley of our listeners.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing, and I keep telling psychologists about about this population because it's kind of the gold mine for a researcher. Which I'm no no longer an original researcher in, in in my career, but somebody has got to be looking for this thing. You're always looking for an area that has a huge number of people and virtually no data. Nobody has really focused on it, and this is one of them. There are thousands of young men in our culture who are staying at home. um, Often we sometimes refer to it as the the guys who are living in mom's basement and really having a great deal of difficulty getting out. They often have very few friends. They're often not dating. um, They're usually not employed. And really having a, a struggle trying to establish themselves as independent adults. In Vancouver, anytime I talk about this population, people are saying, oh, yes, well, housing prices are so high, nobody can move out of anywhere. But in fact, this is happening all across Canada, all across the United States. It's happening in Britain. It's happening in Israel. Uh, and it's certainly happening more than perhaps almost anywhere in Japan, where it has uh, the name that, that's uh, going more with this population than anything else. It's, it's more in the public consciousness in Japan than anywhere. And they call it hikikomori, uh, young men having this, this difficulty. And there's vast numbers of people. And, uh, and it's kind of a needless problem in a way, because there are ways of helping young men uh, become independent and really seize their adulthood. In a way that they haven't been.
1: Yeah, it's such a pivotal time for a, for a guy. Uh, you know, at that moment in their lives. You know, what's what are a few pieces of advice that you would give to somebody that's that's in that that same position
0: right now? One bit of advice I would give, and this echoes something uh, sort of tangentially from the book. Um, is think back to all of those people who've been telling you all your life that what you really need to do is find your passion. You know, this will guide your life. You need to find the passion in your existence and, and charge forward and, and, and find a career and build a career in that area. And I tell them to think back of all those, on all those memories and bundle them up and throw them in the garbage because for the vast majority of people, that is utter destructive nonsense.
1: (laughs) Which is fascinating because I feel like that is what everybody seems to be
0: saying we're supposed to be doing these days. Oh, I know. It's so awful. (laughs) When I'm meeting with these young men, I mean, they're saying, well, yeah, I mean, they were talking to me about this in grade nine, and I had no idea. I, was, I thought there's got to be something that is absolutely grabbing me to the point where I can't let go of it, and 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 there is nothing. So what I need to do is wait, and sooner or later, my passion will, in effect, come knocking at the door, and I, I say, well, it it's not going to. It's not going to. Passion is not like it's some Easter egg sitting out there on the front lawn that you're going to stumble over someday. Give up on the search for passion. Instead, look for your vague interests, things that you just kind of have a, you know, kind of a hankering for, and then begin investigating those. Passions are not, for the most part, discovered, they're cultivated, they're grown you're looking for the oak tree what you need to be looking for is the acorn
1: and i feel i feel like you know like like honing in on on your curiosities at that age is so important and i feel like at the same time we're not we're not uh, encouraging uh young people at that age to be curious to you know to explore and make mistakes and and uh you know, uh, stumble over things that you possibly never would have run into had you not kind of gotten out there and, and tried all sorts of different things?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think we put a tremendous amount of em- emphasis on coursework, for example, and, and, and to some extent, justifiably so. Uh, marks and grades and actually learning the things that are in school are all worthwhile. Um, but there's so much time spent there that people don't actually have uh, that much time to think about. Okay, well, what else am I interested in? And the other thing is that uh, between um, uh, video games and uh, s- smartphones and uh, the internet, uh, people spend so much time with that that they they are not really thinking about what do they actually want to produce. Most of most of that. Uh, time that they, that's spent in front of screens for a lot of young people is receptive rather than constructive.
1: For these young men that have gone, you know, sorry, gone past these these uh, challenges uh, of, you know, getting out of the mother's basement and all that sort of stuff, what sort of advice would you give to them to sort of maintain their, their sense of um, uh, place you know uh place in in society and in their, and in their new in their new you know uh period in life
0: well, one of the things that I, I remind people of is that their first job actually isn't intended to fulfill your passion. Uh, in, in some respects, wouldn't it be awful if your first job was your great passion? Uh, you had nothing to grow into. Uh, the f- function of your first job is actually to pay rent and, and enable you to live independently. But from that point forward, then you begin shaping your life, your adult life, and saying, okay, where are the doors that I have walked through, the things that I have explored that turn out to be useful and that feed me in some way, that uh, feed a passion, and begin following those. And gradually with shifts in career, uh, with promotions possibly, you begin moving towards uh, areas that are much more fulfilling. And also, you know, begin thinking that life is more than just having a job. You actually need to have a a fair bit of balance in your life as well. I encourage people to think way down the road and think, what would you be glad to have done in your life? If you regard your life as an important thing, what would be something that would be a part of that mission? Not just surviving the week, not just waiting until Friday, not just getting as much money as you possibly can. But what do you actually want to accomplish during your time on this planet?
1: So is that is that more a question of purpose?
0: I think so, yes. But it, the danger with it is that it's, it becomes paralyzing and that people think, until I know my great purpose, I cannot take the first step.
1: Right. And what do you do in that case? I mean, I, I, str- I struggle with that all the time. I find myself... Sitting there, you know, pen in hand, in front of a notebook, ready to kind of write down my purpose. Because we've all done those exercises before, and I think to myself, "Oh God!" Because I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, one of those guys that ha- has constant fear of missing out. Uh, what if, what if, what if my purpose is completely off course, or what if my purpose is something that I, uh, I'm not really meant for?
0: Uh, I find it so daunting. Right. Well, one of, the, one of the reasons that it becomes daunting for people, I think, is that they're trying to do two things at once. And this is a complex process, and you have to break it down. What they're trying to do is come up with ideas and decide between them at exactly the same time. And so when people are thinking about these things, I urge them to, to, uh, to think like the Nobel Committee. You're not trying to make a decision. You're trying to come up with your long list. After you've got the long list, then we'll try and come up with a slightly shorter list, and then maybe we'll come up with the two or three things because one thing is almost never it the two or three things that may go into uh, your your sense of purpose in life mm.
1: Mm. so you've written this book there's forty there's forty uh, uh, you know key techniques. Are there any that you that you perhaps, or sorry is, is there any that you think you if you, were, if you were to have a chance to, to write a, a, a second version of the book, are there any that you would want to add? Is there any you'd want to kind of tweak? Have, have things shifted at all in, in, uh, in the world since, since you've written the book?
0: Well, it's still quite recent, so I don't, I don't know if much has shifted. But there is one uh, section of the book that uh, is quite brief, and um, I think I, I might expand on that. Uh, a little bit more, and that 's this idea. Uh, one of the techniques for for getting more miserable, I put is, is, uh, is, is go into therapy. Um, people tend to go into therapy because they want to get less miserable, and in fact, therapy is kind of my business, so uh, it 's it's to my advantage, I suppose, if people go and seek therapy. but the point that I, I would make is that there 's a lot of people out there who are basing their entire lives on self improvement. Everything is about getting better. You know, every book that they read is a self-help book, like some of the ones that I've written or uh, or other people. Um, every time they, they have a free weekend, they're going to some self-improvement seminar. Uh, everything is about really reinforcing the idea that there's something wrong with them. And it's possible that that may be... Um, causing the problem to get worse, increasing the conviction that there's something the matter with you, that there's something deficient. Mm. And, and so I, often with, with clients, I'll say, well, let's imagine that this depression was over or that your panic attacks subsided. What would you be doing then? What would you be reading? Where would you be going? How would you be living What would you do in your life that would be different if we resolved the problem for which you came to therapy? And my suggestion often is that we try to leapfrog the problem and just act as if the problem was over, as if you're not depressed anymore. Because often if you can do that, if you can identify what is the life beyond, as an example, the depression, the depression dissolves in the process, at least in part sometimes it needs some focal work as well but if your entire life is spent trying to get a rock out of the road uh it's frankly it's not very interesting and it's no surprise that people find themselves discouraged
1: right let's uh, let's voyage down the road a little bit i, th- I feel like that could be a, a whole separate book in and of itself because mm. you know yeah. we, we all know those people that are you know doing the self-help thing all the time and and you know a big part of the mantox community is is personal development but even we admit that it's not something that you can do constantly you have to you have to eventually well i mean I think one of the challenges is that we we fall in love with these personal development books but we're not actually doing anything about what we're learning. We're just we're just reading for the sake of reading and 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 attending these seminars for the sake of attending these seminars. You need to actually take a step back and 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 put some of these actions into sorry put some of these techniques into practice.
0: Well, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. One of the things I do online courses as well on depression and other topics. And one of the things that I always say early uh, in one of the early little mini lectures is listening to me cures nothing and listening to me will actually do absolutely nothing for your life. I'll, I'll make that guarantee uh, that what will make change in your life is you actually doing something. And so, uh, an important part of this, you got to turn this thing off, put this book down, and do something. And if you don't, then don't waste your time. Go read something else. Go do something else. It'll be it'll be better for you. That that,
1: that begs the question. I mean, there. I, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know this isn't a simple question to answer. But it, I feel like there's there is so many more tools available to us, and, and obviously there's. You know things like medication, and 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 we're having more of an open conversation about depression. But what is the state of the union when it comes to depression on a global level? Are are we in fact getting better, or are we in fact getting worse? Now, I know at the beginning of the interview you talked about how, you know, sort of our 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 natural state, or or our, we're good at being miserable people. But is is there any improvement? Are you seeing improvement?
0: No. No, absolutely none. In fact, by virtually every measure, clinical depression is becoming a worse problem. You know, if you spend forty years on a health concern, like let's say smallpox or something, how would you gauge improvement well you'd you'd see fewer new cases you 'd see the the cases that you do have being less severe than they used to be, maybe being shorter than they used to be, fewer recurrences fewer people on disability, and that kind of thing. And virtually every uh, metric, every epidemiological metric, depression is getting worse. Mm. So we'd have to, if we're grading the mental health care system, we would have to give it an F. It's an absolute and utter failure. Wow. That said... There are are strategies that seem helpful, exercise, for example, uh, some aspects of dietary management appear helpful, uh, beefing up social life, that kind of thing. And and this is one reason why I I, I work in the therapy that I do to say, you know, forget talking to me, coming in and talking to me is actually not going to cure you. Uh, But what we need to do is identify what is a fulfilling life. Life is going to cure you. It's not me. So what we need to do in our sessions is to try to figure out what do you need to do to get a more fulfilling life. Right. Uh, in my in the workshops that I give to therapists, I'm constantly saying therapy is weak, life is strong. Therefore, stop trying to cure anybody with therapy. Try and cure them with life instead. So that's that's one thing I would say. Also, also, also I think many of the strategies that we're using are completely wrong-headed. Uh, there's an example out there. Uh, and that many of your, uh, your listeners will be familiar with, that in recent years, we've been talking about one of the big problems with depression is the stigma uh, of people having depression. and We need to overcome that stigma so that people don't feel sort of humiliated about talking about it. And we spent millions of dollars trying to overcome depression stigma. And the strategy is almost always the same depression is a disease like any other disease just like heart disease or cancer or diabetes everybody has heard a message along these lines we came up with the idea uh, that that this would help people I'm I'm not entirely sure how uh, you know the idea of overcoming stigma means getting uh, us all to see ourselves as one big, Uh, family with a common humanity. And how we ever got the idea that the way to do that was to create two categories of people, the well people, who are not depressed, not OCD, don't have PTSD, and so on, and then the sick people, those people who do, and then drawing that line in the sand between the two of us, and somehow that will erase the lines between us. That never made sense to me. But fair enough. Fair enough. If it works, let's go for it. But it, it... It got implemented. And subsequently, there's been a great deal of research on this in which you go out into the community and you assess to what extent do you believe the anti-stigma messages that we've been giving? And then you say, okay, and would you want to live next door to this person? Would you want to date this person? Would you want them as a member of your family? Would you hire them as an employee? And what do you think about their dangerousness or long term stability? And the answer is that the more people believe our anti-stigma message, the more stigma there is. It's very clear. We have just spent millions of dollars in America and Canada increasing the stigma against depression and other mental health concerns. This is not an atypical thing. We've done this in a number of areas.
1: I I feel like the conversation around mindfulness has has increased over the past few years. How does mindfulness factor into... Uh, treatment of depression. Uh, is there? Are there some techniques and, and uh, tools that, that are in that sort of uh, realm?
0: Absolutely. The strongest evidence uh, has to do with the prevention of relapse. So somebody who has been through a major depressive episode and has recovered, as people do, if they then adopt a mindfulness practice of some sort, it appears that this reduces the risk of relapse. Now, There are probably also mindfulness practices that are useful in the depths of depression. But many people find that uh, sitting on a cushion trying to uh, focus their mind or uh, be mindful is is pointless, futile, and frustrating in the depths of depression. So it may, may or may not be the thing. But indeed, during a depressed state, also during an anxious state, to what extent is the mind on the present? It's very, virtually uh, virtually never. Uh, I have three little bowls in my office, and I'll, I'll suggest to a person, imagine that we could tape record your, the entire contents of your brain for a day. And we'll snip it up into little one-second pieces, and then put the pieces in one of these three bowls. This one is the past. This is when you're thinking about that humiliation from last week or that good thing. This one over on the other side is the future, things that might happen, things that you're planning to happen, things that might happen tomorrow and so on. And in the middle, it's what's going on right now or right at the moment that you're perceiving it. At the end of the day, which of these do you think would have more little slices of, uh, of tape in it? And virtually everybody says the same thing. The one that would, ha- would have the least would be the one that's in the present. And we can't, we'll never get to the point where we're all about the present. As a matter of fact, it's not even a good idea. We have to learn from the past, we have to think about the future, and we have to get milked for tomorrow's breakfast. But you've got to spend at least a little bit of time in the present. And if we can beef that up with some mindfulness practices, often we can do quite well. And this can actually improve the experience of our life.
1: And, and do you have any techniques for beefing up that, that mindfulness practice?
0: Yeah, I actually think that that what we're trying to do in many respects is, is a bit wrong-headed in that we're teaching people meditation. Um, I think that meditation is tremendously useful, but for many people who are in an agitated place in their lives, it's just impractical and and frustrating for them. And so I encourage them to do something else. Identify something in your life It pretty much demands that you pay attention in the present and start there. Uh, In Vancouver, some of the things that people talk about are things like uh, mountain biking, because if you're on a mountain bike going down a trail and you start thinking about yesterday or tomorrow, bang, you're off the bike, right? So mountain biking actually forces you into the moment. Skiing does as well for some people. Uh, And so I think I advocate that people think about all the things in your life that you ordinarily do um, and find the ones that yank you into the present a little bit more and then do those focus on that process of, of focusing on the present and then start doing things that yank you into the present just a little bit less. So for some people, that might be something like gardening or jogging. The nature of jogging is that we're actually pretty good at it so we can space out and think about other stuff while we're, while we're running along. But it yanks you into the present at least a little bit so you don't trip over your own feet. So during that exercise, try to redirect your attention inward or uh, inward to the present, I, I suppose I mean, not inward to the self. So notice where you are. Notice the feeling of your feet in your shoes. And then notice your mind as it begins spacing out and thinking about that business meeting tomorrow, and then very gently bring it back to the color of the leaves on the trees and the feeling of your feet in your shoes again. And I think that that is much easier than sitting on a cushion in an empty room where there's absolutely nothing going on. That's useful, but it's, it's too difficult for a lot of people, and a lot of people just find it frustrating.
1: Uh, I think and I, th- I think it's the frustration that that's that turns you know so 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 many people off um meditation which which is the ironic part um you know we we've talked a lot about depression and and being miserable and and there's there are important topics but they're a little on the 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 uh, the darker side. I wonder if we can wrap up with a little bit of fun. Um, can I throw some rapid fire questions your way? Sure. And we, we haven't prepped these in advance, so these are literally going to be rapid fire questions. So off the top, I w- I wanted to ask you, who is the most influential person of all
0: time? Oh gosh, who knows? Um, let me think. In my own I would uh, my own life, it would be somebody that nobody's ever heard of, which would be Milton Erickson. I would perfect.
1: Say. Uh, Everyone, everyone Googled uh, Milton Erickson. Uh, What's the most underrated trait for modern day success? Humility. Great. Something everyone should experience. Mm -hmm. Thailand. (laughs) Any specific uh, city in Thailand?
0: Um,
1: Rayleigh Beach. Beautiful. Uh, If you were to take one book on a desert island, what would that book be?
0: Uh, oh, I'm going to be horribly boring with that. I'd take Shakespeare.
1: That's not boring at all. Any any particular book?
0: Uh, 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 the one I have is 10 pounds. It's all of it. <laughs>
1: um, if you were to take one movie on a desert island?
0: Oh, good question. Um, Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Hmm. And the single biggest lesson that you've learned in academia?
0: Not to be an academic. <laughs> Perfect. A frustration. Uh, finally, uh,
1: you know, I wanted to wrap up with, with this question. What do you want your lasting legacy to be?
0: An increased awareness of the fact that life is inherently difficult and that if you're experiencing it as difficult, you're not disordered and you're not inadequate. You're experiencing it pretty much as it is it doesn't mean that life has to be depressing all of the time but it does mean that we need to develop an increasing comfort with the fact that life is difficult and we will experience uncomfortable emotions that sadness is not a disease anxiety is not a disease these are normal parts of the journey
1: mm, well said you know i love the way that you that you uh put a, a, a unique and different spin on, on the way of looking at the world. And, and I think you've done an incredible job with how to be miserable, 40 strategies you already use. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, Dr. Randy, what's the best way people can say hi to you, get a hold of you, learn more about you.
0: Probably the best is to visit my website, which is randypatterson.com. And Patterson is with just one T. Uh, so that's one way. And I also have an online, uh, uh a course site called psychology salon.teachable.com. com.
1: So uh, Mantox community, go check out Dr. Randy Patterson. Um, and if you want to learn more about Mantox, you can visit Mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, lots of amazing new articles, which we've been posting, and information on all of our events. And please, please, please subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And please, again, leave us a ratings on iTunes. Uh, it helps to man it forward and get our podcast into as many years as possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Mantox podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation.